0: Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Jake Liu, who's the co-founder and CEO of Outer, which you can find at liveouter.com. And Outer is a venture-backed startup based in Santa Monica on a mission to inspire happier, healthier, and more fulfilling lives through innovative direct-to-consumer outdoor furniture and lifestyle products. They're redefining the retail e-commerce experience by creating the Neighborhood Showroom platform, which is a community that turns their customers' backyards into showrooms, quite an interesting concept. And in this episode, Jake and I go through a lot of different things, including how he started the business, how he built his amazing team for this company, how he develops new products, including the couch they first launched and why this is an innovative solution to outdoor furniture that really came from talking directly to customers. And we go through his other entrepreneur ventures as well. So much to talk about in this episode. Hope you enjoy it. As always, these show notes are at grindcom slash podcast. You can support the show. Leave a rating and review over an Apple podcast. And check out the Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. Which is at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here is Jake Liu from Outer. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here and want to dive into a lot of different things. But what I want to start with, start off with is with Outer. What is Outer? Can you explain what that is for people?
1: Yeah, so Outer is a direct-to-consumer brand that focuses on um, the fast-growing industry of outdoor furniture. Um, so we are going to market with the most comfortable, durable, and innovative outdoor sofa to basically take the pain and chore out of outdoor living. And then we're actually going to market with a pretty interesting model, which is we're calling a neighborhood showroom. We're turning our customers' backyards into our showrooms. So it's kind of like Airbnb meets retail. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, I looked at your website and seen a bunch of stuff with it. And I was like, that's a fascinating, fascinating way to do things. I'm curious as to how you came about this idea in the first place.
1: Yeah, so long story short, um, I have uh, a cousin who owns a patio furniture factory that's been supplying you know, furniture uh, to big box retailers in the US and all over the world. I saw the opportunity with D2C you know, with companies like Casper and Aubirds in a way. And I thought that applies really well to this industry, given that, you know, it's littered with uh, poor quality products and just insanely high prices for anything that's, you know, high quality. And so I thought this DTC business model makes a lot of sense. So when I um, came across my co-founder, Terry Lin, who was the former head of design at Pottery Barn, and then the VP of product management at Casper, you know, I knew I had the perfect team and resource to kind of tackle this problem. And the last part was the, the, you know, the crowdsourcing technology came from an engineering background. So, you know, the idea and the prospect of building the next generation retail platform by turning people's homes into, you know, offline showrooms uh, that got me really, really excited. and had to tackle this and take it on and, yeah, built the company from there.
0: Yeah, and from first for having this idea and kind of knowing these things, how long was that process until you decide to actually go after it? So I'm just curious about that because people have ideas, they never know. Oh, should I actually do this idea? Like, how long was that kind of process from first thinking about it to okay, we're actually going to do this and get going?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I didn't really, you know. Uh know about the furniture industry or uh i didn't know patio furniture was even a thing <laughs> yeah um but you know obviously seeing the furniture first uh sorry the factory firsthand uh in person that was really impressive um and also just seeing you know the amount of people that are buying furniture online you know wayfair amazon uh and then i look at you look around um and my friends you know who are buying furniture online i saw that you know there's definitely something there and so i Really started researching this industry about maybe uh three and a half to four years ago. And I actually started by just selling the same stuff from the factory uh on, you know, Shopify and on uh Wayfair Amazon. And that business grew pretty quickly. Uh actually went from zero to a million dollar run rate in less than six months. Uh, and just me doing that passively. And so when I when I had the uh you know, experience of that, that consumer demand, right. That's when it, you know, the idea started, um, coming to me, you know, of turning that business into DTC and really focusing on the product development, you know, doing everything from scratch, instead of just selling the same thing they can find from Costco, Home Depot, Target, you know, Walmart, and then selling it online. And so, uh, you know, it really started as a cash flow lifestyle business. Um, and then, you know, when I saw an opportunity to turn it into a venture backed, you know, uh, you know, a bigger vision. Uh, that's when I actually started setting out uh, to to fundraise and you know start the team and start developing the technology platform and all that for Outer.
0: Yeah, and how did that that transition go? That switch go for you? You know, from the lifestyle business side of things into then a VC backed company. What was that switch and how did that kind of come about?
1: Yeah, the lifestyle side. I mean, it's good uh, cash flow, right? Just, uh, just for myself, it was um, you know, I was able to pay for my bills and then some, and uh, you know, that was enough validation to say that there's a market. Um, and uh, you know, when I was talking to my friends, you know, a lot of whom are, are investors and angels that are in my previous business uh, prospect-wise, um, everyone thought it was a really good idea. And uh, so, you know, I actually started a new company uh, that's, that's, you know, Outer uh, that really focused on the D2C aspect. While the other cash flow business, that's just a more of like a passive business, right? So that's still running in the background. Um, but it's in a very different category. Uh, you know, it's a lower priced item uh, product and business.
0: Yeah, And then we said running in the background. So it's pretty, pretty hands off compared to, to this one. And what are you doing then with between the two? Are you still doing much at all with the other company or you're just mostly on outer?
1: Yeah, mostly on outer for sure. I mean, okay. uh, demands, you know, more than 100% of my attention. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other business is very much autopilot right uh it's it really just drop shipping and selling everything on amazon i have a team uh that kind of helps me with that and wayfair um having the family connection certainly is very very helpful um uh, with the on the supply side of things and so you know that's pretty much autopilot now
0: yeah and with your with your co-founder at outer you mentioned you know, find kind of the perfect person how did you either how did you convince him to join you and to do this this new idea with outer
1: yeah, I mean, thinking back, it's been pretty crazy. So Terry, just to, you know, paint a picture for you, he is probably one of the most impressive people that I I, I know. Um, you know, he's, uh, uh, you know, graduated from RISD, Rhode, Rhode, School, uh, Rhode Island School of Design, yep. uh, worked at IDEO, one of the best industrial design agencies in the world, then came out and became the head of furniture design at Pottery Barn, which is one of the largest <laughs> furniture brands, right? And then And then from there, you know, he worked at Walmart for a little bit, consulted for Calvin Klein, and ended up being the VP of product management at Casper. That's when I actually reached out to him on LinkedIn. At the time, my strategy was, you know, I needed to talk to someone at Casper because my vision at the time was, you know, hey, I'm going to build a Casper for outdoor furniture. And so, you know, where else would I go to ask for that kind of advice? And so I reached out literally cold on LinkedIn. Uh, Just one sentence. Hey, Terry, you know, my name is Jake. I want to build the, you know, uh, cast profile for furniture, got some resource on the supply chain side. We'd love to chat. Right. And lo and behold, he actually responded to me, <laughs> which is just, you know, mind blowing in the, in the first place. You know, people don't typically reply to LinkedIn yeah. messages nowadays. And, uh, looking back, it was June 30th, 2017. Turned out that was his birthday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I did not know about this. That's crazy. Uh, he was, you know, uh, really receptive to the idea. We got on a phone call the next day. I flew up to San Francisco the week after, you know, went out on a founder date. We, you know, shared a lot of the same values we found out. And then uh, he also, you know, shared some of the same observations about the outdoor furniture market, you know, coming from the bigger brands, you know, at Pottery Barn, etc. And I saw that there's an opportunity. A few months later, you know, we flew back to China together at the factory and then started working on it together. So, yeah, I mean, Looking back, you know, it was a lot of serendipity, a lot of luck, uh, obviously, but, you know, it did take a lot of just painting the vision and really convincing him that that there's definitely something there for him to drop a cushy, you know, opportunity at Casper, obviously, you know, rocket ship a startup to start something from scratch with me.
0: Yeah, and it's just crazy, like a cold LinkedIn connection. But at the same time, you if you don't try, you'll, the answer is always no. You know, you have no chance whatsoever if you don't at least try to connect with these people and reach out to them. And you, know, you do get responses from LinkedIn. I mean, it just depends on how you do that and what you have to offer. Obviously, with having supply connections for you, it's helpful. Um, and just to have a call from that, it's like something he might be interested in. It kind of makes sense, but still, such a crazy thing for that to even happen in that way. Yeah. And and knowing you have this yeah. vision for you know the Casper of of outdoor furniture, then you have this vision for this company. You have this co-founder on board. Like, what is the first things you guys do to make this even a company to start this company? Then, or the first couple of things you're doing?
1: Yeah. So particularly, you know, particular to our industry, um, you know, we really um, tackle the customer problem head on. And so, you know, by selling the you know, outdoor furniture on Wayfair and Amazon, I can't help but notice some of the recurring problems that customers tell me, right? For, the, for example, your outdoor furniture is always dirty. It's always wet, right? You're sitting on a <laughs> cushion and you didn't know that it's wet and, you know, now your pants are wet. It's the too. worst. <laughs> and so it's the worst. Everybody can relate to that. And so those are some of the more obvious problems. So we just ask ourselves, can we actually solve those uh, customer problems? Right, and turns out we could. So we actually invented this thing called outer shell. You can check it out on our website, liveouter.com. But basically, it's an integrated piece of fabric that's tucked uh, behind the cushion itself. So once you're done using uh, the furniture, you can just pull it over, and it covers the uh, the surface from getting wet and dirty. Right? It's it's a pretty simple invention in hindsight, but no one has thought about it. Right? It's 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 a very simple solution, but you know, people. It, Companies like Pottery Barn and Bigger Box retailers, they don't really tend to think about those customer problems, uh, you know, um, head on. And so we were able to take advantage of that and patented that, you know, and that's one. Um, The second thing was, you know, uh, we looked at obviously the overall market, right? So if you go out to fundraise, if you talk to any, you know, smart investors, they want to know that there is something there, right? In, In this case, you know, is it a billion dollar market? That's a very cliche pro- uh, question that VCs ask, right? Um, of course. But we we had to be honest with ourselves too, right? Is this just a $100 million market? You know, can we only just build a million dollar company, pay ourselves salary and that's it? Or is there something bigger here? It turns out it's a $9 billion market. It's, you know, it's one of the fastest growing sectors within furniture. Um, you know, 92% of all single family homes built last year in the US had some sort of deck, porch, or patio. You know, there's a lot of signals telling us that Hey, this is a market that's worthy of our attention, of our time, and worthy of raising money to build something that's much larger than just cash flow business.
0: Yeah, and looking at that too, and knowing all this research you're doing on the customer problem itself and the market and everything, then how do you decide which? I mean, from that, how do you decide which furniture itself you're going to offer? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different types, I guess. Like, how um, do you get to that point then?
1: Got it. Yeah, really good question. Um, so our current product is a modular sofa. And so you can actually, you know, piece the pieces together into, I don't know, like a sofa or a love seat or a sectional or just a chair, et cetera. The reason we, we went with that was because one, data. So we were doing some research on Wayfair, Amazon, some of the bigger box, you know, retailers and see what are some of the most popular configurations and then looked into, you know, what are some of the insights that we could uncover to make those products even better. Um, and secondly, you know, because of my cashflow uh, cash flow business. I knew that 80% of sales came from this particular seven-piece modular sofa. And so we, we were asking ourselves, you know, can we make a better version of that? Um, so that's how we kick-started the, the product development side. Yeah,
0: and then with your co-founder too, knowing he has all that experience with, with the product, how did you split up the kind of roles, responsibilities initially with him?
1: well so i don't know anything about furniture (laughs) (laughs)
0: um
1: and uh you know uh, terry knows everything about furniture he's probably one of the you know most qualified people in the world uh you know about furniture design so i really just say you know hey terry go to town you know like just uh are some of the insights i have here are some of the data that i gathered you know we collaborated on that but when it comes to design and you know the product uh, materials and all of that that's all terry right and so for me, it's really about uh, quarterbacking on, you know, what are some of the cus- consumer insight? Can I do customer development? Can I go out and talk to customers, you know, face-to-face, phone interviews, gather data and market research and all of that to support him? Um, uh, but yeah, he, he really just handles, you know, pretty much like 99% uh, on, the, on the product development side. I, w- I would say because I have a, you know, a degree in computer engineering. Problem solving is, uh, you know, kind of like second nature to me and something that really drives me, right? So when we uncovered that, oh, wet cushion, dirty cushion is the problem, then what are some of the solutions? So on that invention alone, you know, I spent a lot of time with Terry and uh, to come up with some uh, a solution. And that doesn't require a degree in, in product design, industrial design or furniture design. It really just, you know, requires some first principle thinking, right? Like, well, wet cushion, how do you keep it dry? <laughs> and, you know, here's a solution. So, yeah. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, and you, it, yeah, it, it does, and it's obviously, like, yeah. You how do you keep it dry? You cover it with something else, but at the same time, people weren't doing this, and it goes back to what you just said—the first principles thinking, like what should this outdoor furniture be, like you know, th- in the first place, and that's, um, that that's how you can figure out these these solutions, and also talking to customers and figuring that out. One thing I'm wondering too, like with that, just from that small little thing of like the wet cushion, dry, dry, dirty cushion, whatever it may be, like how did you actually? Like literally approach that, that problem? Like, was it like, Oh, the are whiteboard possible options. Well, chat, I'm just getting a little granular on that. How did that look for you guys?
1: Yeah. So the problem, you know, one, we noticed that and two, you know, it was really pushed, uh, by one of our advisors slash investors in early days. You know, he had personal issues with that as well. He was telling us, you know, how it's always dirty and, 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 uh, went and all of that he really pushed us to to, you know challenge the conventional you know design and to get to that uh, to that design um mark our investor and so um you know we just went to i think the first step was we just kind of literally we were at the restaurant we were just drawing on napkins i mean that sounds pretty cliche like napkin idea but that's literally what we did we were just drawing different designs you know is it a retractable shell is it out of you know is it like a a, you know like motor system like it went really (laughs) complex it's like a Kind of like a clamshell sofa design that the entire back can can collapse on it and we went through some pretty crazy designs on just on paper and then what really uh propelled everything forward was when we went back to the factory in china and just you know started playing around with the fabrics there with existing material and you know it was we just came up you know when we actually came came up with the idea of a zippered you know shell uh just an additional layer that's zippered to the back of the cushion and we tried it firsthand you know uh, ourselves it felt really really intuitive uh kind of like a laptop lid right once you're done using it you just kind of sh- shut it down and you cl- shut it off yeah and so when we felt that firsthand we knew that you know that's something that we want to go with and then we quickly iterated on it uh you know we went to this interest, uh, in the seamstress uh in the factory and then prototype something and then you know once we showed it to everybody at the factory everybody was like wow such a simple design but this works and so
0: yeah yeah it works it solves the problem and you said yeah obviously that the family running the factory like how long is that process though kind of like the prototyping process of getting to actual finished product how long did that take you guys
1: the first prototype literally took 15 minutes to prototype and then like another hour to sew it on the, the first prototype cushion and we tried it out and uh, we iterated on that because another thing is uh, transporting uh, transporting the cushion is a problem. People like to, you know, take it inside ah. when there's like a heavy storm or if they're going you know, out for vacation and they don't use the furniture for a long time, they want to de- be able to easily transport it. Typically, you know, traditionally people just stack them up like pizza boxes and they move it and it's really cumbersome. So we actually took a step further with a shell design where we integrated a piece of a handle uh, to the shell so actually the entire cushion turns into a, briefing, a briefcase that you can actually just take and go with you, right? So it's a, another insight that that we knew because people wanted to easily carry their cushions in and out. And so, you know, we iterated on the design, but that entire process didn't really take that long. Probably, you know, a few days at the factory. Yeah. And then we finalized the design uh, before we left the factory within the, the first two weeks.
0: Yeah, and then, and then going back to something you mentioned as well earlier with, obviously this is all on the product side. Then with the investors, what were you looking for from investors, and how did you kind of approach that process, knowing that you had this VC-backed idea with, you know, the Casper for outdoor furniture? How did you approach uh, getting investors?
1: So, um, I think there are two answers here. The first one is the, we didn't know if VC was the right route to go for this, given that you know, obviously, I, you and know, I had the supply chain, which is takes care of some of the inventory and upfront capital constraints. And secondly, you know, if we had that connection, then do we really need to take VC, right? Can we just grow this, uh, you know, build into profitable business and then, you know, look at, I don't know, like debt options or then, you know, look at if there's venture interest, right? Given the right. The, um, the heated, you know, DTC market at the time. Um, that was one. And, but secondly, you know, it, it was when we really had the idea of uh, Neighborhood Showroom. And again, that idea came from, a pr- customer problem right like buying a you know a pair of shoes online uh or something that's lower you know priced, is no problem because the worst case you just return it right yeah. um and it takes a day to to deliver to you and you know amazon really changed people's behavior about online shopping you know free returns and all of that but with a piece of high-end furniture premium product that's a very considered buy you know a lot of people still want to Go see, touch, and feel the product in person before they make that decision. It's a it, you know, it's a it's a longer sales cycle, right? And so, how do we solve that problem of, you know, seeing, touching, and feeling, leveraging the five senses to kind of make that purchase decision? And the answer wasn't going to be you know, build up a bunch of retail showrooms, right? Furniture retail showrooms are probably some of the least efficient retail real estate there is uh, because of the bulky items and bad experience and all of that. So. Once we, you know, uncovered that problem and then came up with a solution of, you know, this crowdsourced retail showroom idea, that's when we knew, you know, well, that takes product people, engineers, you know, rebuilding Airbnb really is, is, is what it is. And that really requires VC funding. And so uh, when we knew that's an opportunity, that's when we decided to go to the VCs and, you know, shop the idea around and see, Hey, you know, is this something that's worthy of, of your investment? And, in my case, because this is the second venture funding company I had, I did have the benefit of, you know, approaching some of the VCs I already knew. And quickly that round came together. Um, so you know, but at the you know, but in the first place, we had to convince ourselves that this was a venture, you know, backable idea.
0: Yeah. And then with getting the actual venture capitalists on board, how long was that process for you? I know it can be a, a wide range for people. I'm just curious for you individually. How was that?
1: Yeah, my first friends and family round. It was really just an idea stage. This was before we even had a prototype. But I was just presenting some of the facts, right, about the industry. The fact that it's a huge industry, nine billion dollar market. There's no brand. Um, you know, there's a lot of consumer problems. The fact that you know people can't, you know, either go buy disposable furniture from you know uh, big box retailers, where they go for you know the five, six, ten thousand dollar sofa from some of the lifestyle, you know, uh, brand name retailers. But there isn't really a brand that stands for outdoor furniture, and so that was pretty easy to digest for some of the angel investors. So for my friends and family round, I think I raised a, probably just like a two hundred thousand dollar note, a comfortable note. Yep. That came together literally within I don't know like two weeks or something. Yes. I just went back to some of my you know previous angel investors that have seen how I worked, you know, my first company, and you know how I weathered the storm and, and all of that. So they trusted me inherently. Um, I, I can almost say you know like if I come to them with another idea, they would just support it nonetheless because of just their trusting me, yeah. which I'm you know very fortunate about. But you know that was how that first round came about.
0: Yeah, and and one but with that too, you mentioned your first company. So let's just take dig in, dig into that a little bit. I want to come back to outer too, but that first company. What was the first company then?
1: So the first company is called Prospectwise, and the idea is that we were to modernize uh small businesses and brick and stri- uh, brick and mortar businesses um and uh you know i, I grew up in a restaurant family my mom owns restaurants and you know can't help but notice a lot of the problems that she was facing pen and paper solutions and you know technology adoption is really the last thing that she thinks about even though it can really unlock a lot of value for her business and so Started building, you know, solutions for her, and then found out that you know the biggest problem was to, you know, how do technology companies actually reach small business owners? It's one of the hardest things. Um, doesn't matter if you're just a startup that's trying to sell something to a restaurant, or if you are literally if you're Yelp or Square, some of the biggest companies in the world, trying to go after this very fragmented market. It's one of the toughest problems to date, and so the idea was that you know we can facilitate that process. By, you know, building this crowdsourced, um, you've seen a a theme here, right, (laughs) into this crowdsourcing thing, Um, you know, we hired over 4,000 people nationwide to go door to door uh, to these restaurants and small businesses, you know, accountants and, you know, salons and spas and uh, boutique stores to collect firsthand uh, business intelligence information, you know, who is the business owner in the case of a business card uh, and how to contact them. Their email address, their phone number, and also what kind of point of sale system are they using, et cetera. And we will use that to collect offline data, compile that into a database, and then we work. We will work with technology companies on the other hand, uh, on the other side, to basically empower their customer outreach and business intelligence research uh, to then, you know, build a crowdsource network of, uh, you know, offline data connection, uh, offline data gathering platform.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned this was this was where you got the investors in the first place in the first time. Then. How is that yep. different than, you know, di- much different clearly when you already have done this once, but what do you think made these investors want to invest to you with this with prospect wise?
1: Yeah, I think to your audience, probably the first time, you know, fundraising is probably more relevant. Yeah. I'm assuming, you know, a lot of your audience is going out for that first check. Right. Yep. And so, you know, I just came out of college. I didn't know anybody in LA. I mean, I grew up in Alabama. I went to school in Alabama, <laughs> came to Los Angeles, not knowing anybody, you know, what is venture capital? I don't know, you know a lot of, about that. Um, fortunately, you know, I was able to get into one of the accelerators uh, here in LA, and that really, you know, connected me to the the kind of like the venture, uh, you know, community startups and meeting other, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and founders and who have been really helpful to kind of help me navigate, you know, the early stage. But that first time fundraising was really, really hard. I think I pitched more than 40, at least 40 or if not 50 investors um, to get to the first check. Um and, you know, that was just a process. I was just learning, you know, what what are some of the feedbacks that I've been hearing from this one investor pitch and then, you know, improve upon that and then go to the next one until, you know, I hit that one um, that one investor that believed in the vision, right? It's it's really power of one. You just needed one person or one partner to really believe in you to write you that check. And so, you know, knowing that, you know, and because I was selling to restaurants, which is one of the most notoriously difficult industry to sell to i had a thick skin to you know take notes from the investors um you know so yeah it was just like a process uh you know just a
0: numbers game yeah and with that too one thing that's really i haven't heard much about or it's really not talked about all that much is while you're fundraising you're still trying to go the business how does that go with, with fundraising and that taking up your time but then also still trying to go like the company at the same time like just can you talk about that that dynamic a little bit
1: yeah, really good question. That's probably one of the biggest learned lessons for me um, because uh, ultimately prospect-wise, I ran into a pretty uh, uh, ugly you know, founder fallout situation with my original two co-founders. Um, and the reason that happened was because during the fundraising process, which required 100% of my time and energy and attention, a lot of things that are going on at the company, I was just kind of putting in the second place, right? I, I wasn't prioritizing that. I thought my priority is to get the money in the bank so we can even survive, right? I can worry about my, uh, you know, problems later. Um, turns out, you know, I was really, you know, closed off to my co-founders and I was not telling them, you know, what's going on with fundraising because I didn't want to share the negativity, you know, all the no's you're hearing from the 30 plus investors, yeah. right? Um, but they viewed that as, you know, oh, Jake is not being transparent to us. Like what's going on really? So once we actually successfully fundraise two months later, you know they came to me and they wanted to keep me out of the company right and so um and you know that that entire story you know it evolved into you know like a six month process of back and forth and involving investors and you know eventually they left and i you know i kept the business and i kept growing it and saved it from demise and rebuilt it from the ground up but you know long story short i think looking back if i had to do things differently you know i would have you know paid more attention to the to the team health and and, and culture and the business itself knowing that fundraising is important but you know without the team you don't you know you don't have anything right number one reason that startups fail is because of uh founder fallout and the team not working together not and number two is then out of money right so um that's definitely a huge learned lesson for me so definitely you know have to balance that, you know, growing the company and fundraising at the same time.
0: Yeah, which seems like uh, obviously such a difficult thing to do, especially if you have never done it before. You don't understand like how this is going to go. You don't know how long the fundraising will even take. I mean, you mentioned talking to 40 people, 40 plus people, right? Like, it's just crazy. Yeah. Crazy.
1: I mean, in the beginning, I was telling my partners that, hey, it's only going to take me three months, two months, you know, to fundraise. Ended up taking six months, right? <laughs> and so setting that wrong expectation for my co-founders who are also first-time founders who come from a technical background who don't really have a lot of knowledge about fundraising and how that goes, right? They view that as my incompetency, right? And looking back, it's like, thats I mean, that's, you know, sure, like I wasn't really experienced as a first-time CEO, but you can only control so much in, in the fundraising process, right? And so it ended up taking six months. And so we still got it done, right? But at, at the same time, it really deteriorated the trust because i was you know setting the wrong expectation for them so i would say you know setting the right expectation for your partners or your co-founders and knowing that fundraising is a very difficult job that requires full-time attention and for to to gain that appreciation and empathy from your partners is extremely extremely important
0: yeah and yeah setting those expectations is everything so it's how you set up in the beginning is really gonna uh, lead to like how that actually ends up going moving forward and yeah, as you, as you mentioned, being first-time founders is really tough because you don't really know necessarily what that's going to be. But as you can get more educated understand that, yeah, the fundraising could take a long time, many, many months, it could, it could help then knowing that in the first place. But to, to jump back to Outer yep. uh, real quick too, and kind of on the same issues in terms of related to team, like how, how did you approach then growing your team from initially it was you and your co-founder uh, with Outer? How did you approach growing the team and how fast did that kind of happened over time?
1: Yeah, so Tara and I actually got to the got the company to a certain stage where you know we have a physical product, right? Uh, the prototype is already done. Production plan is already done. Um, you know, we already have uh, you know that the for D two C brand, you know, the brand is important, right? So the website, the uh, you know everything uh, is in a good place. Then I started reaching out to you know uh, more seasoned operators. In this case, you know people who have worked at e-commerce companies before, who have built companies before, and supply chains before, um, and uh, you know, and then you know having the, the 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 money in the bank already to be able to to pay not market rate salary, but you know definitely not kind of like the you know out of school ramen <laughs> you know sal- sal- salary as well. Right. So you know this time I'm approaching it very differently. And so you know the, the, the senior hires that I have, you know my founding team, you know VP of marketing and product and operations, they are all just seasoned operators. Um, so that came together pretty pretty quickly. My VP product, uh, Brett, he actually um, uh, met us as an angel investor. So he actually angel invested in the company first, and then you know over time. You know, there's. It's pretty obvious that he can add a lot more value to the company if he gets involved on the product side, right? So then he joined us full time. My VP of Marketing, Corinne, and VP of Operations, Patrick. They, they, they were both uh, referred to me by you know one of my investors. Um, you know, as hey, you you just gotta, you just gotta talk, talk to these guys. They can really help you grow. And so that all came together pretty organically. Um, we didn't really, you know, I didn't really set out like a recruiting process or anything like that. Uh, but it's all within network, right? It's all friends referrals and uh, it's all investors referrals and and, and that kind
0: of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then having a team, obviously your team in place and then you have the product too. I'm sure people are going to be wondering as well, like how did you get the word out? Like how did you actually distribute this, market this um, once you had that product or how did that process go for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, you know, we thought the uh, neighborhood showroom idea was really novel. And so looking back, you know, particularly at all the DTC companies, they all have this kind of like I wouldn't say magic bullet, but at least like an idea that's very uh, share worthy, right? So if you look at Casper, the mattress brand, they're like mattress in the box, you know? Yeah. That's a very spreadable idea. Warby Parker, home try-on. Oh, wow. I pick five pairs of glasses. And I can try all of them and just return the, the, the ones that I don't like. Novel idea, right? That PR, you know, went a long way for them. Um, so when we looked at our business... We knew that you know we wanted to come up with this novel idea that can get the top top the funnel awareness, right? We want something that PR you know and press wants to write about. We want to write uh, you know build something that people want to automatically share on their social network. And so that to us was uh, was neighborhood showroom. Um, so before we even launched the product, like before you can even place an order, we actually just started recruiting uh our hosts so people who are willing to open up their backyards to neighbors to come visit and check out the product Mm -hmm. and that's how we actually got the first orders come in because they have to buy the product at the end of the day they can't just get the product for free and then you know use this as you know purely as a money-making uh mechanism um so you know then the the company grew from there essentially you know uh, that generated a lot of awareness press wanted to write about it um and then you know and then we can double down once once we launch, you know, with uh, online marketing, obviously, right? Facebook, Google, and all that good stuff to accelerate learning and data gathering.
0: Yeah. And talk, and approaching those first kind of initial people, like what did you do to even get those first people on board to, hey, offer your backyards with furniture? What were you doing to, to get those customers?
1: <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to recall. I think the first thing I did was I posted to next door, you know, like that yeah. neighbor uh Neighborhood yep. app. Yeah, this is like community yep. thing. So, literally, I was like, hey, you know, dear neighbors, right? Like, I'm starting a company. I have this crazy idea. I want to turn your backyard into my showroom. <laughs> you know, would you be willing to do it? And turns out, like, 40 some odd people responded. Like, you don't see a lot of threads that are responded by 40 plus people. Right? <laughs> and so, like, I was like, wow, I really got something here. And so, I actually went and visited some of my neighbors uh, in LA who responded to me on uh, next door. And, Turns out, you know, they're all really passionate about the idea. And the next step was, you know, I started a uh, pretty low cost. I think I spent like $500 or $1,000 on Facebook to do like a wider campaign that really just targeted uh, LA saying like, hey, become, you know, one of the first 10 uh, hosts in LA to, you know, to become, you know, this next generation retail platform and, um, you know, be, be part of this really exciting new brand and built a really ugly landing page. Uh, with Unbounce to basically get all the information. We got hundreds of applications wow. <laughs> with, you know, $1,000 spent. And so that's when we knew this is something that's, that, that could be really scalable and, um, but yeah, that's how we how we first started. Yeah, and
0: that's something to echo that point of like using Unbounce and just a landing page with Unbounce to send people to from Facebook ads or whatever like it's such an easy way to get started with a business even with um with the podcast production company Pod Puppy like we literally just did a landing page as well and we had a virtual assistant email people cold about podcast production and that's how we got our first customers. And it could be such an easy way to get started and you obviously you can build things out from there but to get that data too. You have the data then and you can just Grow from there. It doesn't have to be a a, a necessarily longer process than that to get started in in that way. Very MVP style, be it may. Um, And then, and then as as the company has grown, then then too, like is it has it just been kind of more of the same in terms of the growth strategies, or are there ways you've kind of changed things up? How's that gone as you've grown?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, so you know, fortunately, you know, the the neighborhood showroom um, idea and the platform has grown. Uh, I would say quite organic just because of, you know, again, press, you know, wrote about it. We were featured on, you know, like Curb and some of the bigger publications. And, you know, we still have to, every every day today, you know, people are still reading the article and then sign up, you know, through a, a funnel that we designed. Obviously, you know, we invest in a lot of technology. So we built an onboarding flow and, you know, they, there's an easy way for them to apply and send their photos in and videos and you know, talk about themselves and qualify that. Now we have a team that really dedicates dedicates to qualifying onboarding our showroom hosts. And so that's been, go, uh, you know, uh, still been, you know, full steam ahead. Um, as we then focus on, you know, we launched the company about five months, uh, five months ago in April this year. And so really it's about learning the first set of customers and who they are, right? We are introducing a, a more premium, you know, Product. Our average order value AOV is thirty seven hundred dollars, yeah. right? That's that's actually pretty high for any e commerce product. And so we were kind of skittish in the beginning, like who is crazy enough to buy this <laughs> sofa on on the internet sight unseen, right? And spending so much money on it. It turns out a lot of people are willing to because they they still see the value. That you know these are not first time, you know outdoor furniture buyers that can't justify that spend. These are you know people who got burned by. You know some of the bigger name uh, retailers where they spent tens of thousands of dollars and you know just got a mediocre product. And when they found outer, you know they they found that it's a it's a it's a great value proposition. They like the design, they like the uh, you know the quality and obviously the outer shell, the 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 you know the patented design that we have. So getting that kind of first, I would say even the first hundred customers that would come to the site and buy the product sight unseen and learning who they are. And you know what, what what's their behavior? You know, obviously it's not like they land on our page from an Instagram ad and they bought right away. Right. You know, you know, while they're in, I don't know, in the bathroom or something. You know, like that doesn't happen. Uh, for us, it's more like oh, they have to talk to their spouse and they have to do some comparison. You know, they have to ask some questions. They want some human touch, right? Whether it's like chatting in our website or writing in or even calling us. And you know, the sales cycle is obviously you know a lot longer. And so. Learning that kind of behavior and then knowing, you know, where in the consumer journey we can target these customers most effectively, um, that's been kind of like a, uh, you know, ongoing uh, learning process for us.
0: And and with the company too, obviously it's it's pretty new here. Then what have been kind of some of the biggest challenges or things that you are kind of constantly trying to work through with, with the company?
1: Yeah, so just as I just alluded to, right in the beginning, we were not really confident that we can sell a high-priced item on on you know on yeah. our website, and so we actually try to feature some of the cheaper. So it's a again it's a modular sofa, so like we fe- try to feature the the cheaper configurations. Oh, maybe it's a love seat, right? It's two-seaters, so it's only seventeen hundred dollars, right? And so we we hit the the biggest configuration, the five-piece, which is forty one hundred dollars at the bottom of of the page thinking that most people will probably get a sticker shock and they would not buy. And the biggest learning there is, and and guess what? It turns out over half of all of our customers actually just buy the most expensive configuration, (laughs) right? And so that was a huge learning for us because if we target the right customers who really see the value and everything that that we are presenting, then we should be really confident in our value proposition, our product to cater to that customer demographic, right? And so... Um, why Why would we even hide the the best performing product at the below the fold and try to hide that from customers who are really looking, seeking it yeah. out? Um, and so that was a huge learning for us. And now we're in the process of, you know, featuring actually, you know, even uh, better configurations. And now that we have real customer feedback coming back about the product, right? We have a NPS, so net promoter score of 100, which is pretty much <laughs> Uh, but it just goes to show, you know, how big of a problem this product category is and how much our, you know, customers got burned by other brands and companies. And now with the confidence in the product, we can then, you know, be really, uh, you know, double down on, on you know, uh, marketing spend and, you know, be really confident about our service and products to, to do that. But before, you know, the first 100, 200 customers, we didn't have the the boss that that,
0: right? <laughs> so to do that. Yeah, speak. exactly. And then with yeah. with that too, I mean, you mentioned obviously it's just like a maniacal focus on on the customer, what their needs are, which is how you should run a business, how you should how you should approach it. But are there any times where you're getting like the wrong insights from some customers? Because obviously, there's different feedback you're getting. Are things? How do you say no to things they maybe want or things they're saying versus and kind of filter through that?
1: Yeah, good question. So we definitely hear a lot of people saying like, "Wow, your product's so expensive." right lower your prices um you know that's i think everybody hears that feedback no matter what product <laughs> you're selling right you're always yeah. too expensive for people who are just not in the market for your product right whatever that product uh you know category is and so i think price is always a false uh, you know objection um and you know it's really about qualifying the, the the customer and sure we're going to introduce more affordable options in the future right I really look at ourselves as kind of like the tesla approach right Model S comes out, and then there's Model Three for the mass market. Yep. But you can't really build the the brand, uh, you know, in reverse. You can't come up with the mass market solution and then go upstream, right? And so, yeah, that's really how I think about Outer at the very least. So, I'm really really excited to, you know, uh, introduce, you know, what what I'm calling like a small space collection, right, for the urban dollars for the millennial customers myself included that live in bigger cities that have a smaller balcony. Can we actually introduce a product that's more affordable and that's more functional and that can fit, you know, a smaller space at a sub $1000 price point that they really, you know, uh, enjoy using. Sure, right, but that's going to take some time. And so we do have some pressure of, you know, customers and investors, you know, asking us, "Hey, that's clearly a bigger market. It's mass market. You should just do that right away." But we really need to focus on serving our current customers well. You know our current customer. She's a 35 year old woman that lives in, outside of a bigger city in the suburbs. Who is a you know homeowner uh, who has a young family, right? Is that yep. demographic uh, easier to reach, reach uh, on digital channels than uh, than the millennial urban dweller market? Probably not. But you know we, we decided to make that customer really happy and really you know to focus on creating products that serve that demographic first and then move downstream you know from there. And so. I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know, that's some of the objections that we we, we have been getting and we decided to uh, not, uh, you know, take action on, but really just focus on what we're doing really good right now.
0: Yeah, and like... like to that point, to echo that exact point, there's so many things you could be doing in your business, right? You just can't do it all necessarily right away or at the same time. And and even to the point of like the Tesla strategy, like that was literally just talked about in class last week oh. of going from like a high end roadster down into the Model S to the Model 3. That's right. Because you can't do it the opposite way. The mass market then right away is, is almost impossible, especially as a startup with with limited resources. It's like you have to choose. And I imagine there's also maybe better margins and everything at the higher end as, as well. And so it's just a, a way, way to go instead with a company
1: well it's um, for e-commerce products and i'm sure a lot of your audience probably think about starting you know selling a product right like really it just comes down to do you want to compete with amazon yeah right like true the answer yeah. for me is no like i you know they have the scale they have the you know uh the the network to compete on price right i i can't build a brand online that just purely depends on price because amazon is always going to win and so, yeah. you know, I don't want to do that. I want to build a a brand that can cater to a specific demographic that that Amazon is probably not very good at serving servicing right now, right? So, if you look at all the successful DTC brands, that's almost always the case. Uh, you know, its price is re- is really you know the last thing that they 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 service. I mean, uh, there's good value, but it's definitely not the cheapest thing you can find on the market.
0: Yeah, they all have built a, a fantastic brand. I mean, that's exactly why we, we know these companies in the first place, right? And I yep. mean, everyone can kind of associate that with someone. And that's going to be the same thing with Outer, right? It's like this going to be the brand name, like, oh, of course you're using, you're going to use Outer. It's just the one that's known. I'm sure is kind of the goal too. And and uh, to dive into just a little bit deeper on, on your background, why did you come an entrepreneur entrepreneur in the first place?
1: Um. Yeah. So. I guess, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I was pretty entrepreneurial in the way that I like to, you know, uh, you know, my, my dad's an engineer, electrical engineer. So as a, at a very young age, I started, you know, building, you know, like small electronics. You know, he was teaching me how to do that, playing with the soldering iron. And then eventually, you know, learning how to code and, you know, really like to create little apps and, you know, uh, websites, et cetera. And really found a lot of fun in, in, in doing that and really into, you know, video games and, You know, I always wanted to create a game and, you know, I I worked a video game company later. And so all of that really kind of fuels my creative energy, I feel. I I think that brings me the most joy in life, looking back, is just creating something from nothing. And then on the other side is the, you know, my mom has always been a serial entrepreneur, you know, restaurants and, you know, uh, small businesses and just seeing that process, right? And then, you know, kind of taking... Uh, control of your destiny, so to speak, that really is, uh, you know, re- I think that's really attractive to me. And so I think in high school, the, my first business was, uh, um, uh, this was the part 2000, 2006, 2007, uh, before the iPhone really came out. And I, the first business I did was just to go to Costco, buy these cameras, and then um, I would I would install them for, for restaurants as like a surveillance security uh, company, uh, like a solution. And I would pro- yeah. program something for like Android phones where they can actually remotely monitor. This was before Dropcam, right? This was before- What? <laughs> before the- <laughs> it's insane. The, and, you know, I, I think I I think I made more money as this high schooler than I, you know, the subsequent business that I built. Because like I can just <laughs> install that and I think I would buy it for uh, from cost of like $300, install it for them, service included, and this little app that I built for them, you know, like, like you know, spin up a Linux server on-premise at the, at the restaurant, charge $5,000 for it. And people would just pay left and right for that. I would have like a work order yeah. every weekend, right? And so <laughs> uh, that really started my entrepreneur journey. And that's why, you know, I noticed that, you know, oh, restaurants are, you know, facing these other problems, which then started that, you know, prospect-wise software business, et cetera. But that's
0: how I started that's awesome. Uh, what a, what a great way to get started with, uh, making actual sales and actual money when you're, you're not even in college age yet. That's that's amazing. Um, and with that too, I obviously, since you've been building companies for so long, then like, how do you approach or what's your vision of like when you get a new idea or how do you even even approach getting ideas for businesses? Do you look for problems first? Like what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, both from just creating, uh, companies and also started doing a little bit of angel investing and looking at some early stage founders i think there is a recurring theme which is um you know i guess the industry calls it like founder market fit you know there's product market fit but there's also founder market fit and that's that's understood in many ways but to me it's really just you know how motivated or how passionate you are about the problem set that you're presented with um because uh you know without that fit you know it's just there's just too many reasons to give up on it. Um, and so, for example, right, like w- one of the companies that I invested in, um, uh, STEEZY, they're an online hip-hop dance education company, right? The, the two co-founders actually competed uh, in a hip-hop dance competition and, you know, placed <laughs> pretty, pretty highly. And, <laughs> and so, you know, they started a blog and then, you know, they found a following and this is, you know, they would never do anything else in life than building this company right? I have another company yeah. called Dre Alliance. They do Drayage. And for your audience, it's the leg that's, you know, uh, moving the container from the port to the warehouse. You know, that's a very particular yep. segment of the logistics space. You know, he, Steve, the founder, upon graduation, like he went out and bought a truck and started trucking company. Like how many co- new college grads <laughs> would go go out of their way to do that, right? Like not everyone yeah. would do that. And so... To me, you know, again, you, know, I, I was really deep, deeply intertwined with the restaurant industry because of my family background, and then, you know, and then later the, uh, the, uh, furniture because, you know, I saw the opportunity with my cousin's business, and, you know, I think my skill set could could serve that, and so, again, I think that's a recurring theme of just, you know, because you know, you, that's just the thing that you you want to do every day, waking up, right, and so you can keep to it, and even if you do, you're not getting any traction, you're go- you're going to stick to it until you see some traction, so yeah does that answer your question yeah i think
0: that yeah yeah i think that's that's incredibly uh important and then also i'm just curious if there's anything else any other any other takeaways or advice you'd you'd give to aspiring entrepreneurs people who you know have thought about starting companies maybe they have an idea obviously you have a lot of experience is there anything else that you may you would you would tell them
1: talk to other founders i mean depending on where your you know audience lives um that's easier or harder right like if you live in silicon valley you can literally go to a coffee shop and hit up a rent a stranger he may be building a startup um <laughs> uh, <laughs> versus you know uh if you're in the midwest or alabama where i came from that's probably a little harder in which case you can probably try to reach out to some people on linkedin you know um try to stay away from you know like the. the bigger names like if you reach out to neil right at casper the founder of casper he's probably not going to respond to you but maybe early stage founders right reach out to you know someone like me or someone that's maybe in their seat stage or you know series a series b maybe and then see if you can kind of start that conversation get some feedback because the reason i say that is because if you can get a founder to get really excited about what you're building they can one help you personally about you know how to approach building that company and hiring and scaling and all of that but they can also connect you to their investors right because my dad my dog's freaking out right now <laughs> sorry about that yeah, it's okay that. it's real that um, it happens <laughs> um and they can actually introduce you to their investors because you know investors really like take meetings with uh you know never cold pitch investor right don't send business plan to to uh to investors just sign on scene and send to that email address right um Almost never works, but always yeah. get a real warm referral and warm uh, introduction from an investor, uh, from an entrepreneur who gets really excited about your business, right? And so, and do that in parallel, right? Talk to a few founders, um, and then if they all want to refer you to an investor, if that's you know, if you're fundraising, that is, then you can almost guarantee uh, guarantee to get a meeting with that investor. And so, I would say, you know, uh, network, talk to other founders, early stage founders share your passion share your vision don't hide your, secret, your idea don't think that it's you know they're going to steal your idea nobody's going to steal your idea uh just be open and then you never know you're just going to run into that co-founder or partner or investor uh if you share start sharing your idea
0: yeah and I think it's so important to say that because people do try to hide their ideas. I think it's so secret but the idea itself is the best thing ever. It's like the execution is ultimately gonna be everything and you need you can get help with it if you actually tell people about it so it's it's an important thing to do and and Jake, where can people go to learn more about you what you're doing and connect with you as well?
1: Yeah, so you can find me on uh LinkedIn uh just my name Jake Lou um I'm also on Twitter I'm less active uh but it's uh my handle is Jake Lou just as it spells out. Um, and, uh, you can also email me at, uh, Jake at liveouter. dot Um,
0: yeah, I welcome any and all emails. Awesome. And I'll be sure to uh, link everything else uh, up there in the show notes, just go grind.com slash podcast. Everyone check out live outer. It's such a cool company. And Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you, Justin. It's been very fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of just go grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen